Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and uh, since I recorded the last episode, in which we were back in lockdown, we then left lockdown, which was great, and now we're back in lockdown again, so we're a little bit all over the place. But such is life in a global pandemic, I guess, uh, and perhaps, you know, especially in a country where we have so few cases, uh, we're trying to control it as much as we possibly can. Uh, and so I am grateful every time we get to experience life relatively normally. Uh, don't take that for granted, given what everyone else is going through at the moment. So um, again, as I said last time, I think hopefully, 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 we can find our way through this at some point in the next six to 12 months and and find ourselves discovering what lies on the other side of this pandemic. I'd like to say on one level back to normal, but on another level, I, I hope we are able to take some insights and learnings as uh, human communities and societies that that will um, help set us up to live differently. I'm not confident that that will happen, but I'd like to think that that kind of thinking is happening and it might find its way to the surface. Um, I oscillate between uh, deep cynicism about whether that's likely uh, through to naive hope. So uh, I live somewhere in the conversation between those two things. Anyway, um, what I want to do in in the next two episodes of the podcast, ever since really In The Shift started, there's been a topic I've been wanting to dive into uh, and it's never quite felt like the right time. And that's to talk about um, the devil, demons and evil. And maybe it's not ever felt quite like the right time because uh, who wants to, who wants that popping up in their feed? Oh, great. Shall I listen to that talk about the devil and evil and, and, and stuff? Um, but look, I do think it's kind of an important conversation to have at some point. And particularly, you know, I think one of the things I'm trying to do in this podcast is to tackle the issues that sometimes we don't know what to do with or or we, we and we tend to either take you know take on board whatever we were told about that or toss the whole thing out completely sometimes for often for very valid reasons because it's been associated with trauma or it's just kind of fantastical or hard to believe or whatever and we've done that with a lot of things already through the 41 episodes of this podcast uh, and so I thought it was the right time to jump in and tackle a little conversation about um, this and you know, one of the things that having kind of a personal history in Pentecostalism in particular and kind of kind of a broader evangelicalism in my own faith journey, um, you know, was this this emphasis really in, in that part of my life on demons and the devil, right? And that's both a personal thing and also a, a more sort of society-wide or national thing, right? So there's this talk of an experiencing of demon possession and exorcisms and all that kind of stuff. Now, bear with me here. If, you, if this is not your history, you're like, say, you're what? Um, so, so stick with me. Um, just, you know, remember The Shining or something. I don't know. I've never actually seen The Shining, but that felt like an old pop culture reference I should make. Uh, anyway, so, th- so there's this like personal level of, of demonic um, oppression or possession or whatever it might be, and then the exorcism or the, the liberating prayer that might be required. And then there was also talk of these kind of more princely demonic entities that ruled over geographic areas, laid curses on regions, uh, stuff like that. That is often sort of quite racistly grounded in sort of blaming indigenous cultures and ancient curses for why things might may or may not be going well in a particular region. Um, I remember reading these these great books when I was younger. This uh, called um, "This Present Darkness" and "Piercing the Darkness," which were the kind of like Christian fantasy novels that were uh, about these you know sort of um, Christians who were resisting the spread of New Age mysticism and spirituality in their towns. 
uh, and and the stories were told on two levels. They were told about you know the people living their lives, and then and then the story was also told uh, with an insight into the spiritual realm, where the angels and demons were doing all of the battling, and you know the angels could only win if the Christians were praying enough, and so the angels would have to go and recruit prayer cover so that they could go and fight the demons and extinguish them, and. Uh, and so there was this kind of again the combination and even in those stories, which were wildly popular amongst um, Pentecostal evangelical kids, teenagers, and, and so on at the time. Uh, this again, this, this layering of the kind of personal that was happening for particular people, and then also these kind of more, um, you know, there were these hierarchies in both the angelic and demonic forces. So there's like the personal kind of possessing ones, and then there's the big kind of geographic um, princes of of the air. Um, and and it was seen as being a, a very kind of real thing, uh, even though those were kind of fantasy novels in a sense. They were fantasy novels that were attempting to portray something that many of me and my fellow Christians certainly believed, and many s- still do. And um, and I'm aware, I suppose, that that what flowed out of that was kind of a, an emphasis on something called spiritual warfare. Which again, if this is not your history, this must sound like you know, very interesting. Um, but spiritual warfare is this kind of way of, of praying that takes on these kind of demonic entities and powers and principalities of the air and so on. And um, that was kind of all well and good until you kind of, well, for me anyway, I can only tell my own story. As I as I grew up and got older, things became more complicated than that kind of simple framework for me. You know, it became... Oh look, that person's actually struggling with, um, with a mental health, you know, condition, maybe uh, schizophrenia or or whatever it might be, or bipolar, and just blaming this on a on a demon and trying to cast it out is in fact seen to be more harmful for that person than than getting them the kind of treatment that they need or the, the meds that they need, or someone suffering from depression who just needs a therapist and maybe some helpful medication rather than to be told that they have a demon because they didn't forgive their grandmother or whatever it might be, right? So um, I started to see the ways in which this kind of um, framing or mentality or worldview or way of, way of seeing these things um, through this kind of apparent spiritual lens could end up being incredibly traumatizing, harmful, you know, and all that kind of stuff for people who were already suffering as well as spinning out into a whole lot of just sort of bluff and bluster. You know, I remember spending so much of my time, especially in my, maybe my early 20s, uh, early to mid-20s, um, sort of praying against all of these spiritual forces for what they were trying to do. Uh, and it took a lot of energy. <laughs> I was like, it was a, there was a lot of kind of uh, intensity about the way I went about that. Uh, and yet looking back, not sure that that was particularly well-directed in terms of the kind of energy that, you know, I sometimes as I now I... I, I older person who has now passed the 40, um, I, I look back with fondness on, on the levels of energy that I had as a, as a young, early to mid-20s person, but I look back with a bit of regret as to how I spent some of that energy. But then, perhaps we all do. Um, anyway, all of that to say, uh, I started with a very set framework on how, some of the, how I saw some of this kind of spiritual world. And then as I grew older... Um, and, you know, on into my late 20s and into my 30s, found myself asking a different kind of set of questions and looking back at some of those assumptions and some of those experiences with a more critical eye and trying to ask some more probing questions of that to figure out if there's another way of seeing some of this that made a bit more sense for me 
and actually made more sense of my life and and not just made more sense but was in fact um, not harmful to people but was uh, helpful and um and that's an interesting conversation to have, you know, because I find myself going, well, if things aren't the way that I thought they were, is there anything even of value here? You know, uh, even when you go to look at something like the Bible as the sacred text of the Christian tradition seems to be filled with some of this stuff. So then if this is all not the way things are, especially now what we know with science and, and, and medicine, then, then, you know, does that mean everything should just be tossed out the window? So I want to spend this episode and the next episode exploring some of the ideas here and, and try to get a, a sense of, of what might be going on and some of those, some of that biblical imagination, you know, the ancient worldview, um, and whether or not, even though we now see the world so differently, whether or not perhaps we've misunderstood some of the things that are going on there, and also whether some of the insights still have some relevance for us, even though we now live uh, such a long period of time later. So in this episode, we're going, I'm going to look at the language of principalities and powers and the demonic. Woo! And then in the next episode, I'm going to look at some of the more personal kind of implications of that and, you know, some of the language that develops around, you know, the notions that I'm, I'm under spiritual attack right now or the devil made me do it or I'm just, you know, um, or blaming mental health issues on demonic problems. We're going, to, we're going to tackle some of that in the next episode. In this one, I want to take a step back and look at some of that language that we see in some of those ancient biblical texts and whether there's interest, anything interesting there for us to pay attention to that might be helpful or harmful. So this is episode 42 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So we're going to start this episode by exploring the language of principalities and powers, uh, which is language we particularly see in the New Testament. And if you're not familiar, it's something in particular that this guy uh, called uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, sometimes known as, who, you know, I have mixed feelings about sometimes. Um, at the very least, he was, I'm sure, a socially awkward kind of guy. Uh, but he seems to talk about this kind of, this language of principalities and powers a bit. So uh, in one of his letters, for example, he says, uh, and this was a really um, pivotal verse uh, in this whole kind of conversation when I, you know, when I was a younger man, where where he says, uh, "For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms." Uh, this language of of rulers, of authorities, of powers, sometimes called principalities, uh, and that you know that all sounds pretty spooky, right? So 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 what's kind of going on there? Um, is he imagining kind of as as I did when I was younger of these kind of um, certainly <laughs> shaped in a little bit by my Christian fantasy novels uh, as these kind of grotesque gargoyle like um, sulfurous breathing talon clawed hand kind of demonic entities um, or is he talking about something else entirely is that just something we've captured in our popular imagination in, in more recent times and to get a sense of that perhaps we have to take a step back and look at some of the overall story that's unfolding throughout um, throughout the biblical and Christian tradition, because it's that story that informs the way that Paul is speaking here. And I want to do this because, as I say, although for some of us we may just want to toss it all out, and if it's been traumatic or, or harmful to you, there's a pretty good reasons to want to 
toss it out, and if you need to do that, please just do. Uh, but I, I do think there are some insights here in these ancient reflections that if we're able to get past our weird and kind of misplaced interpretations of them, might in fact give us some language, give us some sense of some of what takes place in the human uh, struggle uh, to, to live into the good and true and beautiful ways of being in the world. And so, um, and how to resist some of the really destructive, harmful, oppressive, and violent ways of living. So, so that's why I want to do it, I guess. And 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 one of the themes that emerges over the course of the kind of the the story of the Bible, if you want to think about it as a as an overall story, is there's these kind of contrasts all the way through. Um, and in particular, you know, Jesus used the uses the language um, the kingdom of God to describe the way things are when God's loving way of being in the world is embodied and lived out by communities and societies and and, and people. Uh, and so, so Jesus talks about this idea of the kingdom of God, and the prophets have their own kind of language sometimes for that as well. And then there's often a contrast where where that's contrasted against the values and the ethics of the alternative empires of power and violence that we see uh, throughout the ancient world. And um, and you know, it's not just this this kind of dualistic comparison between the goodies and the baddies, as much as it is um, a sense that there are different ways of being in the world. And and you know, I think as the story progresses, we see more insight into this idea that we are kind of capable internally of leaning into those different ways of being uh, at different at this, sometimes simultaneously. Uh, but we see that contrast in in the biblical story. Uh, you know, really early on, some, you, you see it sort of between Cain and Abel. Right in that kind of mythological telling of of the first humans, um, or you see it between uh, the Tower of Babel, where these people sort of apparently seek to build this empire of their own, um, and that's contrasted with the calling of Abraham, who's this one who's kind of faithful to the to a different way. Or we see it in the Book of Exodus, where uh, the ancient Hebrew people have become enslaved in Egypt um, by a powerful, violent empire. And then there's this freedom and liberating exodus as they as they are rescued from that slavery uh, into a different kind of life and called to be a different kind of people. Uh, or you see it later on when there's a in, in a resistance to the idea of kingship in ancient Israel because kingship is seen as being a pathway to hierarchy and power and abuse um, compared with the surrounding kingdoms and monarchies who all run according to that kind of system. And despite this kind of resistance to kingship falling apart pretty early on in the story, um, there's still that kind of suggestion there. Uh, and then later on again, um, when uh, the ancient Israelites or, or Hebrews go into captivity in the kingdom of Babylon after Jerusalem is destroyed, um, Babylon is kind of painted as the picture of this of this violent uh, narcissistic empire. And the prophets who speak of a different way of being that resists that kind of violent, self-serving narcissism and instead offer a different path. Now, as we flow then into the kind of Jesus story, you see one of the ways that that the followers of Jesus sort of make sense of Jesus is through language that's already used of the Roman Caesar. So there's the, uh, you know, they're living now by the time we get to the Jesus era in the Roman Empire uh, and the Roman Emperor is called the Lord and Saviour, um, the Caesar. And so instead they choose to call Jesus their, their Lord and Saviour. And so there's this real direct contrast uh, of sort of what, what kind of kingdom or, you know, what kind of uh, world are you going to inhabit and live out? Are you going to um, are you going to take on the path of the empire and of violent conquest and of um, all that's required of you in that system? Or are you going to adopt the Jesus way? This is, this is some of the ways that, that early sort of Christ followers thought about their 
the, the, the what lay before them? And are we going to follow the Jesus way in which we can um, pursue self-giving love and nonviolence and, and, and so on? Um, and you see, again, the comparison there of a sort of a, a kingdom versus an em- the kingdom of God versus the empire of the sort of the hierarchies of status and power in Greco-Roman society and then, and then the sort of taking a part of that status within, within the, the early church. And then you see it again with the, the the contrasting metaphors of something like the beast and the antichrist contrasted with a with a lamb, right? So you get these kind of um, contrasting images all the way through the biblical story, inviting us to think about what path we find ourselves on, what values and ethics are we leaning into, what ways of being are we pursuing? And one of the ways in which the New Testament writers right, talk about empire and talk about power and talk about um violence and, and, and talk about control uh, is to use this language of principalities and powers uh, or rulers and authorities. And sometimes in the New Testament, those those words are very specifically used about, about um, sort of political positions. And then in that text I read earlier from Ephesians about um, our fight, fight is not against flesh and blood. It, it seems almost a little bit more m- mystical or, or something like that. So there's a little bit of blurriness in the way that the terms are used. But ultimately, I think there's this ancient idea that dehumanization, that harmful and destructive ways of being and of living is, is not only a personal and individual set of choices that we make, but in fact, it becomes kind of systemic, right? So we kind of live our lives um, unfolding with freedom in the present, but that freedom is is caveat. The caveat of that freedom is that our lives are unfolding in respect of what has gone before this moment, right? So we have freedom right now in this moment to choose, but the freedoms that we have right now have already been shaped. The choices that we make right now have already been shaped by what has come before. And so moment by moment, there's an opening up of the world, but moment by moment, we're building on the moments that have come before. And so even though we have this kind of personal and individual kind of choice that lies before us about what we will lean into and what path we will take. There's also the sense that we are a part of a greater network and web of relationships uh, and relationships that form into communities and systems and societies. And so uh, dehumanizing harmful and destructive ways of being in the world aren't just personal and individual, but become systemic. Uh, and so dehumanization, if we want to call it evil, we can, right, to, to talk about what what is... Um, these harmful and destructive and sometimes violent ways of being in the world, behaving and acting towards one another. It's a, that, that kind of stuff gets embedded within the structures and systems of everyday life, both at a personal level and communal and societal levels. And it becomes then greater than the sum of its parts. You know, So evil is not only this personal thing where I choose to act in this particularly destructive or harmful way, but it actually becomes much bigger and, and takes on a life of its own. And I think that's what Paul here is trying to get at uh, when he uses language like principalities and powers and rulers of this dark age and so on. Um, he says our fight is not against flesh and blood, right? But it's against this, this sense that what happens in, in the systems of our and networks of our social lives together is that things become greater than the sum of their parts. And you'll know this if you ever think about like a really dysfunctional organization and you go, you know what will fix this is if we replace the CEO and you find a really good person to come in and be the new CEO and then somehow this 
good CEO, folds into this um, organization and, and sort of gets impacted by it and finds it actually hard, harder to change than they thought and they're trying to implement policies. And then within a few years, you find that the, the, C, the new CEO has kind of become a part of the problem. Uh, you find that in sports teams too. Um, you, you find it in all sorts of systems where, where the thing itself, the, the challenge, the problem, or we might even say in some cases the evil, is greater than the sum of its parts. You certainly find that in politics, right? How many sort of people have gone into politics with this kind of sense that I'm going to go in and I'm going to change it all, but they get caught up in this web of compromise and of of all of these, all of the, I'm not saying compromise is inherently bad, but they get caught up in this web of, of decision-making and of pre-existing systems and structures that ultimately they become the very thing they set out to defeat. And so um, it's not enough, I think I think this is the insight of, of the ancient texts, right, is that it's not always enough just to be able, just to say, oh, that person is, a, is, is doing a bad thing because that, that language is limited and that language, in fact, doesn't capture what's going on um, because what's going on is that something that's become almost hard to grasp or hard to define or hard to nail down, something has has come about or a system or a sort of a way of a way of operating or being or living has taken on a life of its own and it's kind of catch you know people are being caught up into it uh, sometimes against their intentions um, which is not to excuse them of responsibility. Um, but to try and describe it's language that's trying to describe something that's much bigger than the sum of its parts and something that's not just flesh and blood, right? It's not just, oh, that guy over there did that thing. Uh, and you see very, very real examples of this, you know, um, when we when we start to talk about the you know the history and then the the, the ongoing challenge of white supremacy, for example. Um this is a thing that has become more than the sum of its parts and people are born into it and get swept up into it. And then as people invest their energies in it, it, it becomes this kind of wildfire that's in fact hard to contain. Um, you know, groups get mentalities of their own. I remember when I was on a, um, a mentality that kind of surpasses the individual members. I remember when I was on a university protest march back when I was at, at, at university doing my science degree and uh, and I thought it would be good fun to go on some protests. And I remember we we marched up the street to I don't know, to a particular building to protest about student fees. I think. And we storm. Uh, some people stormed the building, and I didn't. I was because I was a very timid Christian boy, uh, but I was sort of fascinated by the fact that everyone stormed the building. And then some people, you know, got up onto the roof of the building, and then everybody down below on the street started yelling, "Jump, jump, jump, jump!" to these to these students who'd got up onto the roof. And I just remember thinking, "Hang on a second, what?" What? Um, now, sort of if you'd have asked any of those people by themselves uh, before the march whether they would be cheering uh, and chanting for some students to jump off uh, sort of a, a four-story building, they would have said, no, that's crazy. But caught up in this kind of mentality where the thing itself had become greater than the sum of its parts, suddenly they were, they were acting and, and, and speaking in ways that they would never normally act or speak. So just the language of, hey, that guy over there is being a dick is not really enough to capture what's going on here. So, um, somebody who kind of who who explores the biblical language for this, who I found particularly helpful, is a, is a scholar by the name of uh, Walter Wink, who's passed now. But he he talks a lot about that idea of the principalities and, and powers, and and says this idea of powers that we see present in something like the New Testament text cannot be reduced to just to like a, a spiritual being, like a like a demon, or even to um, 
a particular person, or certainly not to a particular person, um, or even to a system itself specifically. But he says, he, he, he thinks what the biblical writers were trying to get at here was what he calls both the inner and outer manifestations of political, economic, religious, and cultural institutions, right? So there's this kind of external um, front, but there's also this kind of inner life, both of the individual and of the people involved and of the, and of the system itself. Um, another theologian called Amos Young talks of the powers as emergent realities that are a perversion of, of kind of order, right? And so what he says is there is, there is kind of an institution or a system, you know, because these things are necessary in life. We form political entities to help us process, you know, where should we put that road or that school or that hospital or how we, how we should pay for those who are struggling or, you know, all, all that kind of um, language, that's political language and it's necessary. And yet, um, Yong speaks of this idea that over time what happens is this kind of emergent reality comes into being that is kind of a perversion of the intention of whatever that thing was set up to do. Uh, and and he says, you know, he says, when this happens, governments become tyrannical, nations become anarchic, economic systems become unjust, and social systems foster death instead of life, right? Um, okay, third third scholar I'm going to mention before I stop quoting scholars uh, is this is this, uh, uh, an expert on some of this New Testament text called Timothy Gombus, and he says he says this. I'm going to quote him here so that I can uh, make sure I give him credit. He says, Like us, the ancients looked at their world and noticed that there are social and cultural patterns that are somehow larger than the sum total of human decisions and actions. Part of the available vocabulary for Paul in his Jewish heritage is speech about the powers and the authorities. But Paul does not focus on these beings in themselves, his real aim is to speak of destructive social patterns and exploitative relational dynamics that tempt humanity. Dynamics such as racism, idolatry, addiction, systems of oppression, and the wide range of systemic evils, right? So for these um, experts in the field, the, this concept of um, principalities and powers, and even this idea of spiritual warfare, right, is not about some invisible assault on demons that are flying around our heads, it's just that we can't see them, but about naming and exposing and resisting what happens when when systems and structures and um, and social communities become um, kind of evil in their, or, or destructive or violent in the way that they take shape and impact on people's lives. Um, and, and so rather than thinking about sort of you know, spiritual warfare, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in the, in the next episode. But rather than thinking about something like a spiritual warfare as um, casting a demon out of somebody or um, praying earnestly in your bedroom that um, God will suddenly defeat all of the evil things that are happening in the world through a flick of his, fin- click of his fingers or a defeating of the demons. Um, similar, Wink talks about this idea, you know, that, that there's an exposing of, the, of, of evil a naming of it and a resisting of it that takes place and that that is the kind of spiritual warfare that we're interested in. So he talks about something like in the US, for example, the Selma Bridge March that played such a pivotal role in the civil rights movement in the United States. And he talks about this actually as as an act of what he calls social exorcism, right? It unmasked the kind of racism and violence that pervaded and pervades, unfortunately, much of white American society. And, And in this sense, then, it was that it was that kind of social and political and religious act of protest um, and of action that exposed this kind of insidious evil that otherwise people had convinced themselves maybe wasn't there, especially white people. 
Uh, and so he talks about that as a kind of a social exorcism, <laughs> which is a, a different way of thinking about this kind of conversation. So I guess the thing we might then want to ask about all of this um, before we finish is, okay, what does all this actually mean in regards to how we talk about demons and demonization and even the Satan, right, at a more personal existential level? Are we talking about little beings um, running around, you know? Uh, and look, I'm, I don't find that the most helpful way to think about this anymore. I can understand why that has been at times a helpful way to think about it. And, I, and I, my caveat here is I guess I speak as a white middle-class Western person who, um, who hasn't had a lot of experience wandering around parts of the majority world where some of this stuff is taken much more for granted. So I want to throw that caveat in, and that, makes, that probably gives me pause from making absolute claims about what I think here. I'm, I'm not trying to say I know exactly how this works and this is the way it works and this is what I think. Um, but I'm not convinced that there's anything really to be gained by, by sort of running around looking for demons uh, and sort of hunting them out as these kind of individual beings and entities. But instead, to sort of recognize that the naming of kind of the demonic is, is language for naming um, sometimes the damaged and repressed and dehumanized parts of our human selves that actually require some liberation and some humanization, some compassion and empathy and freedom, uh, and sometimes for language of, of, of how systems and structures and communities need that also, need that kind of liberation. So that kind of demons and the demonic is language for that kind of um, oppressed or damaged part of individuals and communities and societies. And so that kind of New Testament language is perhaps like a, it's a, contextually relevant way of referring to that which we, we might now recognize as our own kind of dehumanization and oppression. And, um, you know, uh, to quote one more, or to talk about one more uh, person, Richard Beck, who's a psychologist and, a, and, and dabbles in theology, he's, he, um, he talks about this and he says, look, the language of demons and of the devil, um, actually aside from whether we're talking about a specific entity here or not, helps us to remember that we get caught up into dehumanization and evil by something that's kind of bigger than ourselves. We are seduced by damaging ways of being in the world that seem sometimes incredibly difficult to resist. And so do the people around us. And so when we observe oppression and injustice done by others, we're encouraged then that our, that our fight, if you like, our wrestle, whatever language we want to give to that, is not against the person as much as, it, in fact, Jesus' command is to love our enemy, right? But to recognize that all of our actions take place in a context and in a world in which we are shaped by and informed by that which has gone before and that which surrounds us. And so instead, instead of a, sort of attacking the person, our interest goes towards, okay, what are the conditions that give rise to either harmful or flourishing ways of being in the world? What... Um, how can we cultivate better ways of treating one another, better ways of shaping uh, our personal and communal lives together so that um, instead of blaming individuals for particular actions in and of itself, without absolving us all of responsibility, of course, um, sort of the language of the demonic, if you like, the language of principalities and powers, gives us language to try and describe the fact that these things are often greater than the sum of their parts. There's something more going on here that it's hard to kind of put your finger on, but you recognize uh, how easily it is to get caught up into something 
almost sometimes uh, feels like it's outside of your control. And so the pathway forward then becomes the path of love and of peace and of kindness and of compassion and of cultivating practices and rituals that help us to, um, to embody those virtues. Um, and ultimately, that's the hope of, um, of the New Testament authors, uh, the, the last book of the Bible, if you've ever read it, it's very odd, uh, is, is the book of Revelation. And it uses this really kind of mythic and symbolic, fantastical kind of imagery to try and describe some of this uh, wrestle that we find ourselves in. Um, and, it, and it draws this um, image of, uh, of a violent kind of beast, which represents kind of empire and what we might call here principalities, powers, or the demonic. And then says, we will overcome by this way of, of, of the lamb that was slain, right? Which is this image of the Christ and of the self-giving life and of love. And so it's this way of self-giving love that ultimately is going to be the thing that overcomes the violence and destruction of empires and systems that seek to dehumanize us. Um, so all of that to say that the language of principalities, powers, and even language of the demonic should not be used, I'm going to say that it should not be used to as, as a kind of a weapon against those who are already suffering, right? It should not be used when somebody's struggling with depression or mental health or what. It should not be used as this way to try and go in and say, oh, you've got these issues that need to be cast out. Instead, it becomes language that if used appropriately can help us to name those things that seem almost beyond our ability to pin down and yet seem to control us or influence us or shape us in really um, negative and harmful ways. And it helps us, when used appropriately, I think, to um, navigate a way forward where we can see and name and expose and resist those really evil and destructive and harmful and violent ways of being in the world uh, through the pursuit of a more loving and compassionate life. So that's where I want to leave us for this episode. In the next episode, we're going to pick up on some of the more personal implications for some of this. We're going to look at some of the language around this whole idea of, you know, me being under spiritual attack or me, the devil making me do this or, uh, you know, what's kind of going on there. We'll, we'll unpack that. We'll explore it. We'll see what the problems with it are and pose some more helpful alternatives. So thank you again, as always, to Reese Michelle for his audiological manipulation of this recording so that it sounds as good as possible in your ears. We'll see you next time on In The Shift.